Okay. So, what's up? We're Still, here. Hey, we're, ready? Okay. We're, we're here in Las Vegas. All right. we're, we're hosting an episode of The Two View, and we've been doing this podcast for almost two years now. Yes. Right? And we cover, I'm Martha Roberts. I'm a nurse practitioner. Hi, I'm Mike Sharma. I'm an emergency medicine and urgent care PA from Dallas, Texas. And we have Dr. Rick Bucata and Dr. Ken Milne here to help us for our topics today. Today, we're going to cover a couple of things. We're going to talk about mastitis. We're going to talk about some paronychia with a really awesome video. And then we're also going to talk about some strange cases. What would you do? I'm just going to say one of the cases involves marbles and a dog. So is this a, a four-view podcast? Because you have your standard two views. Okay. Clearly, I'm an oblique. Right. And then we have the special views. Sun, sunrise, maybe? Yeah, sunrise, sunset. But we have special Frog views. Leg. Frog, Frog leg. Frog leg. Ooh, Ooh baby. That yeah. sounds so, better. We, we have to have a, some special views on this show. <laughs> well, if you want to tune in and listen to this podcast, we have several episodes up there. We cover a lot of really great topics. You can go to our liner notes that are, we're going to put in the show here for you. And uh, we're accessed available on Apple iTunes, on Spotify, and Fireside, which is our main site. Yeah, you can go to our uh, main site. It's called uh, Two View, the number two view.fireside.fm. Right. And we've got every single show there. And this is our 22nd show. Going way back, we've had Dr. Bucata, Dr. Milne. We've had Randy Danielson, who is a PA emeritus faculty from the boot camp. Uh, Diane's been on. Your father, Jim Roberts, was on. Late great Jim times. Roberts. Yeah, so it's been it's a great great place. We have awesome guests here. Yep. All right. Well, so the first thing is uh, we're gonna if you wanna oh yeah advance the I slide. have slides Jeez. to click. Okay. Yeah. So you know we we wish COVID had started in Vegas because as we all know what starts in Vegas happens in Vegas. Ideally, it stays in Vegas here. Certain STDs, maybe not. But otherwise, yeah, they stay in Vegas here. Let's talk about some of these hot topics. So COVID will make it quick. We're all going to be on new, uh, the same footing here in terms of these new mastitis treatments. Paronychia, a little bit of a deeper dive into paronychia. More than you might think. It sounds like a simple topic, but there are some kind of wrinkles we're going to go into. And then everyone, I mean, the ER is kind of like that friend that you know you shouldn't hang out with, but when you do, there's always like great stories to come out of it, okay? And so that's what I'm gonna do for our final uh, segment here is kind of like weird cases Martha's seen recently and kind of how would we all handle these cases? Yeah, so I first just wanna give a couple of updates about COVID that the monoclonal antibodies are no longer effective against the newer variants, um, specifically against this BQ1 and the BQ1.1. Um, yeah, you know, we are, I don't know. How how are we doing on COVID in Canada, Ken? I'm curious. Were, they, were the monoclonal antibodies um, very effective? To begin with? Previously? Yeah. Yeah, like the evidence like behind that. Very effective? Yeah. I mean, now saying, we can say they're not effective. Okay, they're but. clearly not effective and not recommended. Um, the reason, actually, that I found out about this at first was because I got this really cool alert from the uh, from the state of Vermont. And they sent me little text messages and video um, and audio recordings. So I was uh, getting this message and I'm like listening to it and I'm like, yeah, but they weren't really ever useful. So, but thanks for letting me know. Well, I just don't know how useful they were. And I can understand it was a, it was a great idea to start with because, you know, we had people that uh, we didn't have uh, anything really much out, outside of symptomatic management to offer well, these individuals. We didn't have vaccination at the time. We didn't have, we didn't know about dexamethasone for admitted patients. And so people who had had COVID, you know, some of them wanted to donate their monoclonal antibodies and yep. stuff like that. And so, know, so, so from a yeah. hypothesis standpoint and from a, we want to help society standpoint, I get it. I just don't know how effective it really was. And certainly now that we have these new uh, variants, um, it's really not proving to be, um, Effective. Would you have given me yours, though? Um, uh, if you ask. Okay. All right. Well, sure. I have anecdotally, they worked well, and we all know the strength of evidence for antidotes. But uh, yeah, I, I mentioned I'm an urgent care PA, and so where I work in urgent care, we've kind of made a name for ourselves as being kind of a COVID specialty clinic. So we were very like we have Evusheld in our fridge. We had all the different monoclonal antibodies, and people will get sent in by their PCPs from all different neighboring areas to come for antibodies. And, you know, we, we did not hear of any cases where, hey, so-and-so got the antibodies, they were in the hospital a few days later. So anecdotally very well, but I would definitely agree that in terms of like randomized trials and stuff like that, that wasn't really there. 
right, what about the antivirals though? We should probably say, we should mention that. Yeah, so the antiviral treatments are still recommended. Now, um, a quick note about Evusheld in case you had been giving Evusheld. Again, Evusheld, that prophylactic treatment. So that was something to be given to high-risk people before they got COVID-19. That also, it seems to be less active against the current variant. So that also, I believe, has officially lost the EUA, at least here in the United States here. The current antiviral treatments are still the same. Um, in order of the official kind of ranking in terms of which ones do you give. So the first one is still Paxlovid. That is the combination Nermatrelvir-Ritonavir should be given within five days. The next one, the next rank one is the Remdesivir. But operationally, a lot harder to give than Paxlovid here. So Remdesivir, uh, at least the insurances I've seen, you've got to get um, CBC, CMP, and COAX. They've got to have clean of those labs, and then it's an infusion given IV for three days in a row. And that's just kind of a hassle. And number one, it costs a lot. So even our clinic that was very specialized did not have this in hand. So I don't know how well remdesivir is being operationalized, so to speak. Because I, I live in Dallas, Texas, pretty big city, and it's, it's hard to get here, there, rather, okay? Lastly, molnupiravir. Um, that is kind of seen to be much lesser effective in t compared to uh, the other two. Um, the nice thing there is that the drug-drug interactions, I think that's why a lot of people don't want to get into the whole Paxlovid thing because you have to check so many drugs and make sure that they are safe to, to take Paxlovid with all the different you know, polypharmacy the patient already has. And, and who are these high-risk patients? These patients who are older and already have polypharmacy. So um, molnupiravir, less polypharmacy concerns with mixing, but the other concern is can't be given to kids or pregnant women. Less effective than the other two. Was it a mortality benefit for uh, Paxlovid? For, in terms of what? Was it a mortality benefit? As far as like more effective, so to speak? So, so did, it, did it decrease mortality? So I think that or did it decrease hospitalizations? Or did yeah, it decrease no, duration of symptoms? I'm, I'm trying there to- There you go, well, there you go. Okay, okay, okay. I know I like this, I like this talk, yeah. you know, like, uh, I think that the data is still evolving, of course, right? Good Epic, answer. Epic HR is kind of the biggest study out there right now that deals with high-risk patients. By definition for this study, this was non-vaccinated patients. Okay, so already, if you're dealing with a vaccinated patient, you know, what are we dealing with in here in terms of like certainty of data? Well, the external validity to a vaccinated patient really is if it was tested in unvaccinated patients and they're very severe, you would expect the magnitude of effect to be better in that, in that cohort. But if you've got patients that aren't as severely uh, unwell and are vaccinated, um, how much benefit can you expect and would it be an objective benefit? I, I did like the retrospective study coming out of Israel. It's been out for a little while now. It really broke down in kind of terms of four quadrants of patients. So just bear with me, visualize this for a second here. Imagine one quadrant, one half of the patients are 65 and older, and the other half are 65 and under. That's one big division. And then you split each of those age cohorts into exposed to COVID previously, whether by vaccine or some other infection, or not. Okay, have we, have we drawn those four boxes in our head kind of a little bit? So this kind of retrospective study from Israel suggested that if you are 65 years old and over, regardless of your previous COVID history here, there was some potential benefit in terms of um, hospitalization and death, preventing those things, 65 years and older, regardless of your history with um, COVID. Lesser benefit if you were under 65 and not exposed, but there the confidence interval crossed a certain line to where it's like, oh, that data was not as, as, as reliable, so to speak. In the 65 and older patients, the short story there is a little stronger evidence that these things did seem to help. So yeah, I but it's observational. It's observational. Observational. It's retrospective. So yeah. So uh, and you, a you sub you subgroup analysis of a retrospective study. Uh, yeah, I mean we are definitely kind of getting to those like qualifications and decreasing levels of evidence here. Um, I, I think this is one of those things where you're you're kind of in a way stuck 
Because if you've got... That's just what I was going to say. You're stuck. Because it's making me laugh. This is the biggest pandemic of our time. Knock on whatever wood is next to you right now. Let me knock and on Ken's head. There, there's no shortage of recommendations about give Paxlet if it's an old person. Give Paxlet if it's an old person here. And so if you, if you fail to treat a person with Paxlovid, I think you may face an uphill climb in terms of why you didn't. I totally agree with that. And we talk a little bit about that tomorrow during the cold and flu talk with Tammy Flu. So. Perfect. You know, anyway, we said the COVID segment would be quick. Be quick, yeah. yeah. So. A nice quick COVID segment. That's just like, just like all quick. COVID segments. Nice, quick, and uh, really clear in terms of uh, evidence painless. here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, so next segment we, talk, we want to talk about mastitis, okay? So we typically think about this next topic in regards to pregnant women, but it can happen um, in any woman, um, and in men actually, who have gynecomastia, but very, very rare in men. Uh, male breast infection in general is very uncommon. Um, but if someone has severe immunocompromisation or uh, diabetes, we might want to consider that. In general, this term, mastitis, refers to the female breast is swollen, hot, and painful. And it can occur, like I said, outside of breastfeeding, but certainly can happen any other time. When it occurs during breastfeeding, this is the lactational mastitis. And that's about between 2 and 10% of our breastfeeding women. Usually we're dealing with, again, complaints of breast pain, maybe some sort of other discharge from the nipple beyond, um, you know, what looks like milk, uh, swelling, redness, pain to one or both breasts. This can radiate all the way down to the abdomen, all the way over to the axilla. Um, and on exam, the breast is often kind of very firm, very hard. You want to look on exam for fluctuant areas, for little discrete areas where there's fluctuants that suggest an abscess, but generally it's more kind of diffusely firm and, and painful. Okay. Um, now, where this kind of came about, this including in the podcast today, is because there was a, a substack that came out from this Dr. Emily Oster. So she is a um, economist, if I believe I understand by trade here. <laughs> economist and, talking about mastitis. I love it. Well, but, yeah, but they are all about the numbers game. I know, you know? but so, she's, she's a, an awesome evidence-based practice uh, doctor that specifically looks at uh, the evidence and writes about it in a non-biased way. And I, I think her writing is very interesting. She wrote some really good books on parenting as well. Yeah, and she's caught a lot of flack during this pandemic for different reasons, yeah. I think, yeah. for, for good and bad reasons here. But what she covered in the Substack and what we're going to link to in our show notes, toview.fireside.fm, are these recommendations from the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, ABM, not a journal uh, to whom I uh, subscribe currently, okay? But uh, we'll put this new paper in the liner notes here. It's got a lot of good graphics. I'm really glad I didn't print that out in color for my plane ride here because that can kind of interesting <laughs> as far as, hey, uh, what are you reading over there? Oh, nothing. <laughs> Don't like, mind me. I was working on the Paranikia video that we're going to show you in a minute, and the guy next to me literally said, he's like, do you have to do that right now? And I go, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> Exactly. Look away. Seriously. I'm not forcing you it to look at my awful. what I'm doing here. Oh, my God. Okay. I've learned not to edit those on the plane. It was, uh, it was well, not my best uh, moment. <laughs> well, it's a relatively short paper. Yeah. And, and do you want to kind of go over the keys you think that you see? Yeah. So the here? keys of this paper, um, in the past, mastitis has been regarded as a single pathological entity in a lactating breast. However, scientific evidence now demonstrates that mastitis encompasses a spectrum of conditions, um, ductal inflammation, different types of edema within the breast. Anyway, so, you know, there's a lot of really nerdy pathophysiology things that go on with mastitis. Um, and this paper sort of breaks that down as well if you need a review of the pathophys. One of the big problems with mastitis, how it kind of comes around, is there is kind of a, a supply and demand mismatch, so to speak. There is an oversupply of milk being made in the breast to what is being demanded out of the breast and being relieved from the breast, okay? And, and like any other problem in medicine where you have stasis of a fluid, right? You have someone who has a big prostate and their urine is static in their bladder, they're gonna get urinary tract infections, okay? You have blood static in an extremity, you're gonna get DVT. Well, if you have breast milk that is static in a breast, sometimes things can cause problems there as well, okay? Um, this oversupply issue, usually most common in the early weeks of breastfeeding or Again, supply-demand mismatch. A lady is trying to stop breastfeeding, and so they're not having their child feed as much, and so that milk's not going anywhere, and that can cause a problem too. How dare she stop breastfeeding? I mean, really. 
Everyone's got to stop sometime. <laughs> I'm still breastfeeding. The World Health Nominally Organization, joking. I think, still recommends to the age of two. The two, yeah. yeah. No, I, I know I, that they. I do. haven't I looked know. recently, but, but I think that that's what. The but I'm telling was. you, it's a lot of pressure that we put on women to continue to breastfeed. Not exclusively you know? yeah, breastfeeding yeah, yeah, yeah. until two, but um, and yeah, I don't think we should be uh, putting pressure on women still to there. do anything that they don't feel comfortable. Oh, I knew uh, I liked doing. you. Yeah, no, but I mean, you do what you can. And there's no guilt involved. Well, so I, I still recall uh, in, in PA school, my favorite instructor, I'll just go and say it, Dr. Sylvester, you were my favorite instructor, if you didn't know that already, okay? And so he was our pediatrics instructor, and he said, all right, I, all class, raise your hands if you were breastfed when you were a child. And like roughly half the hands went up. Raise your hand if you were bottle fed only, not breastfed. And the, of course, the other half of the hands went up. And he looked around, and he said, well, it looked like it worked out pretty good for all of you, didn't it? Okay, kind of saying, look, it's not breast is best, fed is best. Just make sure the kid has Ooh, enough calories like and, and, and uh, for their yeah. brain. Well, so we're going to talk more a little about this oversupply, right? So the, some people aren't gifted with this oversupply, and actually those people may consider themselves a little lucky to be at less risk for mastitis. Um, but when you have that uh, oversupply, you have bacterial growth, and then potentially this... Uh, Swelling, painfulness, tenderness, the engorgement essentially can lead to a really severe infection. They may complain of fever, fatigue, and many of these cases um, we treat with antibiotics. I do want to note that it is still fine to continue to breastfeed. We're going to get to why that's difficult in a moment when you're on antibiotics. Okay, the correct antibiotics, and you can use your medical apps that we've talked about at this course to sort of review some of that. I think maybe a new concept to us is that mastitis, early mastitis, if they came in, you know, after just a, a couple hours or a day or two into the presentation here, some of this mastitis can relieve itself on its own, mm -hmm. especially if it's before bacterial overgrowth has happened. You know, you fix the supply-demand mismatch, and that can kind of help there. Okay. So how do we kind of fix that? What are some recommendations here? So increasing fluid intake, I think it's pretty rare for someone to say like, you should be drinking less fluids. Like generally, increasing fluid intake, good idea here, okay? Rest, acetaminophen, avoid anything, putting a lot of pressure to the chest, so make sure the bras you're wearing are fitting appropriately um, just for your new body habits here. Okay. Hold on, before you read these next things, Mike, I want yeah. to just point out that what we're about to read you is now considered not suggested. That's a good point, yeah. So um, these are all the things that you would have read. In fact, today, if you pull up the date today, mm -hmm. this is what you'd probably read from up to date. And so let's kind of just go ahead to here. So these are kind of the, the old recommendations. What is thought of as kind of the current, what do you do? Okay, so old recommendations. Warm compresses to the breast, take warm showers, breastfeed frequently starting with the affected breast, pump, pump to get that milk out between feedings, and also massage the breast area. So these are all the old things, and these are the things that ABM is suggesting need to be changed in terms of our counseling of ladies with mastitis. Right, and so what we're actually uh, looking at in this paper, what is recommended, is that we're actually applying ice to the breast area. Warm compresses in general could make this worse, and it's painful. Um, continue to breastfeed, but do not favor the affected breast. In some cases, use only the unaffected breast. Uh, also recommendation to minimize breast pump usage. Do not pump and empty the breast. We don't want the breast to think it's going to make more milk, more milk, more milk. We don't want more milk. We already had too much milk. And then, of course, avoid deep massage of the breast, which might be a disappointment for some husbands <laughs> or wives, whatever. So in these new recommendations, did they give you a strength of recommendation like a grade criteria, like how good was the data to back each of these recommendations up? Is le level one evidence, level two evidence, level three, or eight? Yes, so there were several studies cited by ABM. Yep. Um, and I will post those. There were multiple. Yep. And I'm just wondering what the grade recommendations were for each of them. So. Yes. Well, we will post those for sure. I feel like we talked about this too. It said that a lot of this is more eminence over evidence. Would you agree in terms of like, hey, we've seen these studies and they're compelling enough for us to change our uh, stance as, as the American Breastfeeding 
Um, sorry, the, the term escapes me right now. ABM. I just, I just ABM. Think, there we go. I just always think that the um, strength of the recommendation should be proportional to the strength of the, the evidence. Mm -hmm. And again, you brought it up before, you know, um, what'd you say, uh, Fed is best, or right? Yes. You know, so I don't want to come up with a bunch of new recommendations saying, see, you weren't icing your breasts enough, you know, and, and yeah. like, do we have great evidence or is that a consensus statement, a level C recommendation from a bunch of breast experts? But is that a level C recommendation to be wagging fingers? And so I'm just very cautious about saying thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that because it can lead to a lot of guilt during a, a time that is very difficult for um, new parents. And this is especially true since these recommendations are just 180 yeah. degrees opposite from each other. Let's, um, so it'd be know, confusing, right? You know, like, am I hot? Am I cold? Do I massage? Do I not massage? And how much evidence do we have to say that this is the right thing to do? I hear what you're saying. Um, I think this makes a, a good point. It, it's difficult. We were talking about the CDC yesterday, their recommendations and guidelines, and some of the things that Diane and I both disliked, um, but things that we liked also. So again, when a large certifying body of some sort, specialists of that, suggest something that we do um, based on evidence or literature. I, I know I don't have the specific evidence or literature to show you right at the moment. It's hard to say that you don't want to follow that guideline, that you don't want to do what they suggest. I mean, these are breast experts. These are the but, people, but you know what I mean? So it's, it's in the name itself. They're guidelines. Oh, sure. And, I don't disagree with you there at all. And if you look at a large organization that writes the largest guidelines or the most recommendations, that would be the AHA, the American Heart Association. And they've looked at their recommendations over the last 10 years, and they took their thousands of recommendations and said, how many are level A recommendations mm -hmm. based on really good evidence, randomized control trials, multiple randomized control trials, things like that. How many were level B and how many were level C? And only 9% were level A recommendations. Well, why did you tell me about the thousands of others that you don't have great evidence for? I mean, it's just a big signal to noise problem for me. And if half the recommendations were based on level C, just a bunch of experts sitting around, okay. But it, you know, like how many times in, in the arc of the history of medicine, have a bunch of experts sitting around been wrong? Okay, like again, in the past year. Or? I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get it. So uh, again, you know, <laughs> she's he, reining me in. <laughs> I and that's fine. I appreciate I just, you. These are experts, okay? man. But I just want to. I just want to see what the grade recommendations and, are for how strongly I will make this recommendation when I'm counseling uh, a woman when she comes in and she's breastfeeding and she's di I'm diagnosing her with mastitis. How strong should I go? And so uh, that's the more information I look forward to reading. Well, yes, I hear you there. But it, a lot of these new recommendations, I feel like I have been putting into practice telling patients for a while. They make sense to me. Um, and I wish I had done my own study on this. I mean, I, I would never put a warm compress on a hot red breast. Oh, my gosh, that's so uncomfortable. Ice for sure. Um, and then the oversupply. Of course, I don't want to make more milk. To cause more problems. So those things make sense to me as well. And I can tell you, the last one, yeah, that never helped either. Okay. So you can just take my word for that on that. But again, we tried and tried. And it just... We tried and it did not work. But I will say that, you know, looking at the evidence in the literature, absolutely important. Um, I will show you the papers. This is a large certifying body in, re in regards to breast experts. And I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Maybe a way that this can be like operationalized. I keep on using that word because I just like saying it. Um, maybe this can kind of the real, the real, real when you're in the, with the patient is that like, hey, look, obviously you're uncomfortable and you may have heard a lot of ways from your, you know, girlfriends or from your OBGYN in terms of what you should be doing for this mastitis here. I think the jury's out a little bit. I think you could try some other things if those things weren't working. Okay, mm -hmm. at least give them the option of, hey, let's consider sure. some other things, especially if you tried what, are, what were the first-line treatments and they failed. Okay, well, that opens us up to some other things that may work better. I just love having a bunch of dudes up here talking to me about what, what we should do with the boobs. Well, you know, there's... I'm not... Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm just talking about the level of evidence. <laughs> just saying. That's all I'm sticking to. Whatever. Okay. Not, I'm not Let touching me, that. <laughs> don't touch that. Let me explain... <laughs> okay, listen. Can you, you not mansplain rest to me right now? Okay. Okay. Sure. Oh, here's something quick. 
Well, we, Toad Paranikia, did you come up with Paranikia. this Paranikia, let's go to Paranikia. Before we do that, before we do oh, that, yeah. could I ask what is the uh, antibiotic of choice oh, for these yeah. conditions? Because we kind of skipped over that. Please. Yeah. Did, they, oh, sure. did they change the recommendation? No. Because I, I would think it, you know, this is going from memory, cephalexin. Yes, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's basically a, fine. a staph bug. A staph, strep, yes. And you could even do some of these that aren't used for other things. Like you could do like... Um, like dicloxacillin, these other kind of like, uh, what are they called here? Um, oh, the name eludes me. Basically, they have kind of resistance to the resistant enzyme for, for um, beta-lactamase. Beta-lactamase uh, resistant. There we yeah, go. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, I was yeah, getting yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I was getting there. Augmented. We have all beta, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. We got to hurry. We got to move it along. All right. Speaking of antibiotics and such here. So, yeah, paranychia. Oh, my God. Paranychia. Paranychia. Holy cow. Okay. So, listen, I put a lot of work into this paradigm. If you listen to this part of the lecture, all your metrics are going to improve, right? <laughs> exactly. I hate getting emails from the Paranikia nurse. That's the oh. one. I mean, seriously. The Gosh, QI I've had department? three calls tonight. <laughs> I wish Jillian was here so bad. So, um, <laughs> we joke because part of why we're talking about this, and I make a joke about um, Paranikia, and Ken, why, you know, why don't you tell the story of why this even came up? Why? Oh, it came up. It's come up multiple times with regards to... Um, uh, when we throw resources at a problem, uh, the problem is better addressed. And so whether that is a code sepsis team, a code team, like just for a code team in your hospital, a, a code stroke, code MI, everything becomes a code. And if you add additional resources uh, to that, uh, you can get better outcomes, you can get better patient satisfactions. You can look at all these metrics that may not be patient-oriented, like how fast did they get treated? How fast did they get seen? How fast did they get their antibiotics, if that's the case? All of those things can be improved. And is it any of those individual components, or is it just say, we're going to call a code, and everybody stops in the department and focuses on that one individual? Mm -hmm. When we've got a whole department that are full of important people that have problems that they care about. And so I came up with this sarcastic sort of, well, then we should have a code paranikia team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, get that man a hot water bath. Stet. <laughs> okay. Stet! Um, I'd like to bring up the video. I don't want to go through all the pathophysiology of paranichia. You have a video of code paranichia teams? I do! Of them, everybody, like, code paranichia, code go. paranichia, and everybody yeah. descends? They come in. Oh, wow. It's crazy. Dave's going to cue that up. It is crazy. Okay, yeah, okay. So we're going to talk through this as we uh, play it. So basically, this is your... Pretty angry Parnikia wow. here, right? Uh, at the base of the nail, um, it's not just something you can gently lift up and have expressed. You can see it takes up a large portion of the upper part of the digit. Doesn't involve. It's not a felon, right? So it doesn't involve the pad. So you're going to get your lidocaine. You're going to draw some up. You're going to grab yourself an IND kit and an eleven blade scalpel and eh, plus or minus a culture wand, right? So this is my, one of my favorite hand surgeons who actually wanted to remain nameless. Um, uh, he's a very modest physician who does a very good job draining these. Now, I don't normally call hand specialists to come drain these for me because you don't need to. See, she's doing the block here. This is just your typical. I love this. And the patient, the patient didn't even flinch. Yeah. There was no flinching. Yeah, That's... you like that? You like that? Yep. Yeah, because mm -hmm. his finger hurts so much. <laughs> right, right. Um, so... The only reason I called hand specialty down to do this was because we had 55 people in the waiting room and I had sicker people. And this person was more than happy to come down here and do that. Well, it was nice to see the single uh, puncture uh, technique being used rather yeah. than, you know. So now, I'll, hold that thought. This particular physician truly believes in doing anesthetizing on both sides of the finger and the web space oh. as well because the, Too soon. She, says, she says they will not feel a thing. She'll not, they will not feel a thing, and the patient didn't. Wow. And she knows that she has achieved full anesthesia to the tip of that finger. She's not messing around. She wants that finger numb. Okay? So she does her little block. She finishes this out. You may not have to do this. Test the finger. See if it's numb. But this was her recommendation. Make um, sure you're giving 15 minutes, by the way. After you do the block, give it some time. Yeah. yeah I walk away and see another... 
patient. Yeah, go, exactly. Yeah. Just charge somebody or print out their yeah. paperwork and yeah. then come yeah. back. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, are you using lidocaine or bupivacaine? I, I use lidocaine. Bupivacaine is a better choice. Yeah, it is, because this finger is going to hurt like, like mad. We don't have any bupivacaine uh, where we are right now, so that's why we use lidocaine. Long story. Anyway, so again, cleaning the finger, not soaking it in betadine. Don't do that. I get really mad. I get mad when people soak things in betadine. It's just killing time. Yeah, come yeah. on. Okay, she's testing the tip here, and here is the big reveal. Oh, boy. Now, key, Damn, key to this. Look how she makes the incision. Pay attention here. Hopefully she's wearing iPro. The incision is not made straight across the nail bed for this intense paronychia. And the reason is because if it heals or starts to heal, it's going to seal off that area where the pus is draining. You want that to come out. She's going to get a little culture here. She loves cultures. Yeah, I was going to say. She loves them. You don't need to do this. Only specialists do cultures. But she loves them, and she wants them. She also does a lot of studies, so it's good for her. Plus, if they failed antibiotics, that's when you do a culture, too. Like, mm -hmm. if it's your second time, that's a good time. Yeah. First time, yeah. Oh. Right, so she's finishing up. Not much more time in the video here. She's expressing. She's pushing and expressing. Glad she did that finger block. Pushing and expressing. She's going to push and... and that's with betadine on there, too? Express. Mm -hmm. And watch what is really interesting about this specific paronychia that she uh, takes care of. So once she's done getting out all the pus, we know you want to see that. That's the fun part, right? I thought more would be coming. Yeah, she goes way behind, way behind, and milks the finger. I feel underwhelmed. You know, on, on, honestly, there's nothing much coming out of there. I was hoping for something like pimple popper. It looks like more of a cellulitis. You guys are just spoiled. I wanted pus to splatter on the yeah, camera. Yeah, I, want, I wanted like, oh, right in my eye. Very little. You know my subuncle hematoma video has 1.4 million hits on YouTube? Really? We should, we should show oh. that. It literally shoots up into the sky. No, you don't want it do to hit you in the eye. You should wear appropriate eye yeah. protection. Okay, other key here. She oh, okay. says, she says, get rid of that flap of skin. You don't need to keep that on there. Get rid of it. People it, think that you should just fold it right back over. It looked pretty dusky. Yeah, get it out. You don't need it. We're done with that piece of skin. Okay? So she just carves it away. It's going to grow back. This is a, a, an otherwise healthy patient. And so, so wait, tell me again, you were just saying that she doesn't cut one way, she cuts the other way. So, like, obviously that way is the way she cuts how else would she cut this? Um, uh, horizontally. Parallel to yeah, the parallel. proximal fold? Correct, yes. Okay. So, um, that, that heels funny, she key, says. Key, yes, she does. Okay. Um, the key here is a dressing that stays on for 24 hours. Don't touch it for 24 hours. Okay? Because why? Because it needs that time to not only start the healing process. And I'm not saying there's literature for this. I'm just saying it's her preference. If you want to tell patients what to do, put the bandage on, take it off tomorrow night, and wash it with soap and water. It's also extremely painful to change these dressings. Yeah, so you want to pre-medicate with some Motrin or Tylenol before you do a dressing change. I'm, I'm a big fan of that because they hurt. They're really painful. So anyway, that's the video. How about this? Is it, is it approved? Yeah, I was kind of surprised at how little pus was there. I was disappointed. <laughs> I'd give it a two out of five. There's going to be a Yelp review, isn't there? Okay. All right, moving on. These are our last topics. We're going to get out of here. question, in my opinion, okay? So when oh, it's no. that bad, when the finger is that bad, and, and I know you guys know the answer to this. I'm just kind of like tossing you a softball here. How do you know it's a paronychia and not a felon? Because it didn't involve the pad of the finger. But how do you know that? Because I looked. Okay, but how else? Like, what if it just, it's all swollen? I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm asking you questions just so you can, so well, they you know, know what to ask the patient. Oh, I see. That was a wor worse looking finger than I would normally looked, expect with a paronychia. It looked bad, that's what I'm saying. How do you know? Okay, so you can take the ultrasound and look on the pad. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it could be, yeah, a little bit. But, but more what you're looking for is fluctuance when you tap at it. And you can definitely throw the ultrasound on there. You could, you could poke at it if you want. To, to find the felon is what you're talking about? To find or? the felon. Ken, do you have any opinion on? No. No, a felon is a totally different 20-minute conversation, which we're not going to have. And there's some great videos that I have you can take a look at um, online. Um, but we'll, we'll post all that for you in the liner notes. Maybe this but, is just controversial, but, like, I want to know where their pain is. Like, where is your pain worst? Is it worse to the pad or is it worse up here? Oh, is that what you wanted me to say? I don't know where I was going. Why yeah. Say that, though? I'm really disappointed that you didn't pick okay. up. I'm getting hangry. We need to end this. Okay, got there. So that's that's what I like to talk about with patients when someone has a, a radical finger like that. 
Where's your pain? Is it by the nail fold? Or is <laughs> Do you it go like pulsating? This? Does it hurt pad? here? Yeah. Does it hurt here? Does it hurt here? Oh, it's the pad of your finger. Is that how you do it? <laughs> if it hurts everywhere, then it's your finger that hurts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right. So let's end this with four really interesting cases I had. Two quick ones, ago. right? They're super quick. Super quick. Super, super quick. You know that it'll all be evidence-based. Yep. <laughs> this is Ken, where evidence fails. Tell okay? me more. These are, these are weird stories. Something in my eye. Uh, I got something <laughs> on my nose. Okay. Um, these are four cases I had last week, and I just want to know briefly what you think you would do. Um, the first one is a man comes in with his dog. Okay. He has no papers to say that it's a support animal. Or a service animal. Or a service animal of any kind. And he has no friends or family or anybody that can take the dog. What do we do? As a hospital administrator, I would uh, check with uh, if we have any kind of policy on that to make sure that we're following the appropriate hospital policy. Because while I want to respect that patient and their needs, I also have to consider the needs and respect all the other patients in there. Some of them might have very, uh, may be triggered by a dog. Some of them may have allergies to a dog. Um, there might be other considerations besides that one individual. But it'd be one of those conversations with that individual to see how we can both accommodate them and their dog because you know that I am a dog lover yeah. so I would want to make sure I you know if I was on shift it might be the time for a, ooh maybe I'll take my 10 minute break while somebody assesses them or something like that yeah. so and I would have puppy time because there is good evidence that shows that having a dog come in for therapy can really help your staff morale. Yeah, so if you have dogs come in from therapy, it's not like dogs are not allowed yeah. in the building kind of thing. They're dirty and they're going to contaminate everything. But those so dogs, would, those dogs would have been vetted, though, right? Whereas this would That's be true. an unknown dog. We don't know this if they have dog. Of all their... Like this a is a stranger dog. dog. No, no, but, uh, but I assume that the... You haven't told me the answer, though. The dogs that come in... The, for therapy dogs what have, the have been screened and cleared. What is the answer? This is the kind of stuff that I have every week at the general. What would you do? You're going to want to autoclave those therapy dogs before they come in. Just make them really clean. I tend to, I would tend to let them bring the dog in. Okay, it's wrong. You can't. You can't bring a dog Wait, in. Huh? Nope, you can't do it. Says As Ken said, says there's hospital every policies. hospital policy. So well, what you have to do is call animal control. If you have a policy, it's one thing. But if there's no policy, I would so, tend to lean on the more forgiving side. Unfortunately, as much as I would love to have that dog stay, um, animal control must be called. They come retrieve the animal. Oh, my God. And the uh, patient has 30 days to pick up the dog. And typically I don't know that we have anything to learn from this because that's ridiculous. <laughs> don't get mad at me. Okay, so here's what you would learn then. Okay, so that, this is where you get your house soup involved. This is where you call the administrator on yeah. duty. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's why that's, I said just, just check because it's an unusual situation for me to, and, and when an unusual situation comes up, I don't want to be the one making a solo decision. I'd be like, that's unusual. Check with a colleague. Uh, check with the hospital administrator. Check if you have a policy on that to address that situation. There's nothing life-threatening going on, so we have time to actually find out. Do you have a question? We have a question, you guys. We've do, done do, that before, do, too. Do you so, work yeah, the, the critical from the audience? Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say a critical access hospital? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rural. Rural <laughs> hospital. Rural. Vermont? Yeah. Was it Vermont? Oh, Texas. So an, oh, audience, right. an audience member said that they had one of their so, nurses agreed to take the dog home. While that patient was being cared for, they cared for the dog, right. and they worked at a critical access rural hospital. I think that's a wonderful story, um, and it's one of the reasons I love working in rural areas. Look, if I could take every homeless person's dog home with me and feed them for several days. You'd have a lot of dogs. I'd have a lot of dogs. Okay. All right. Okay. Next. What's your next, next. Uh, next easy <laughs> case? How about even more difficult? Mom comes in with a two-year-old child, has no friends or family. What do we do with her child when she's admitted? Well, you call animal control. And then <laughs> Look at a hospital policy. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, what else? That would be children. That would be child services. Wouldn't yeah, it? right. No. No? Not always. Not always. So anything is always, though. No, but so I'm saying your immediate instinct is to call CPS. No, it's not. It's actually to call social work. Social worker? And then they okay. can Because they as can soon do? as you file anything with CPS, that patient potentially could have her children taken away. Mm. 
like for a long time. Yeah. Well, that doesn't make Some hospitals don't have social workers, So though. social work is necessary to help you coordinate this. Don't jump on the phone with CPS. This isn't a mandatory reporting thing. The mom is sick. No, we just need a little help here. Just need a little help. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, are you taking that child home to your access area? There you go. See? Church, you said churches, churches. Will get involved? Churches are going to get involved there. So there you go. That's a good one. So um, maybe you don't have robust social work yeah. at your hospital engaging, you know, local civic groups. Yeah, that's a good idea. Just saying, these things happen. This is all last week. Okay, second to last. Man, oh, I love this one. Man took an edible at work. And he states that this is workman's comp because it happened at work. And his boss says, yeah, I guess it, I guess it is workman's comp. No, it's not. It's not. I would think. Rick, you want to explain why it's not working? Well, it's, it, what happens if you get sick eating your lunch and you brought to the uh, uh, to to work? If you get sick eating your lunch, you brought this edible to uh, to the to work. It's like they're perfectly analogous. You can't you can't say I got sick eating lunch. My lunch, my I had the staff endotoxin in it, and I already <laughs> got uh, uh, it was the mayonnaise that was bad, and I got the di vomiting and diarrhea. No, that, that's ridiculous. So listen. In my hospital, this is a workman's comp case. But that, I don't I'm think the, state of, California, the state of California would not go for this, though. It is currently happening. Okay, uh, this, this will fall off eventually. I'm, I'm just, just predicting right now. Yeah. I so here's the, here's the deal for, for people in the audience and listener, you at home here. So it's not about whether the thing happens at work or near work or on the way to work. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with does the injury or the whatever happen in the performance of your duties, of your actual duties. So eating lunch in the break room and you choke on your peanuts, that's not in the perform. Like your duties at work don't involve you eating peanuts unless you work for planners. Hey, what if you work at If planners? you work with planners, then maybe it does. Peanut okay, but that's different. That's a bad example. Okay, that bad example. Okay, moving on. <laughs> if you're walking into work and it's icy in the parking lot and you slip in the parking lot, that's not a worker's complaint. Okay. It just happened to be that where you slipped was in the parking lot. Walking as, as much as you have to enter the building to go to work, the walking, the way you walked through that patch of ice was not in the performance of your duties. This is how it's been explained to me. I've had a lot of, like, I mean, military, half the military's workers' comp, let me just say that right now. Military is basically a great preparation for going into workers' comp as, as a civilian PA. And that's what I did after I got out of the military. So I did a lot of workers' comp stuff. And so, we had a lot of these kind of cases. This happened to work. I was driving to work and I got into an accident. Is that workers' Well, clearly problem? that's not workers' problem. You say, you say clearly. I mean, that's clearly. But an edible sure is. Okay, look, your hospitals, they're all going to be different. We got to get to this last one because, again, real case. Real case. And I want to see what you would have done. Woman puts marbles in her butt. Do we remove them or do we wait for a bowel movement? What would you do at the critical access place? Give her a laxative. What would you do? Would you go fishing for these marbles? Do you want to know how many marbles? I do. I like. How many? Do, do you want to guess? Can we do a rectal? You know, marbles sure. come in different sizes too. They're the regular shooter marbles. So the the small ones. Little yeah. Guys. Yes. I would think that they would come out with some laxatives. Okay. I yeah. would ask the patient. Oh, there you go again. Okay. You know, what because you there's more than one way to address this problem, right? And, you know, each way may have some potential benefits and potential harms and um, what's taking place in the department at the time, what are your resources and what's their um, expectations. And so my answer is it all depends. Okay. I Do feel like she put them in, she can take them out, you know? And you could even give her some, a glycerin suppository to kind of aid the passage here. Okay, so what actually happened was I said, how many marbles did you put up there? I hadn't said that ever. 32. No, she only put 12 up there, 12 marbles. And I said, well, what would you like to do? We is, can... this, is this HIPAA in any way? No, no one did. No, no, okay. No, no one, no. No, because I mean, you know. It's like, not. It's a unique case. So. It's, no, you'll never hear about this case. And it could have been last week or it could have okay. been last year. All right. Um, I, I just wanted to bring that up because patient confidentiality. Absolutely. It was not advertised in the newspaper. 
um, and it was not, and you'll never know any more about the patient. Identifying so, details have been changed in case anyone's looking. Yeah, okay, actually, you know, it could have been any number of marbles. Who, who, That's what I was getting at. Okay, it could be any number of marbles. Sure. So we'll say 12. Um, and we gave a uh, glycerin suppository, and a uh, patient had to go to the restroom, and we counted those marbles. There were, there were the number that she said. Whatever number. Then we re-x-rayed. We were good. There's a great study on how long it takes for um, bowels to pass, and it was done by a group in Australia called Don't Forget the Bubbles, and it's a pediatric yes. group. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they swallowed Lego heads, mm -hmm. and there were six members who swallowed the Lego heads, and then they sifted through their poop. This is all for the sake of science. And they sifted through their poop to see how fast this little Lego head would pass. They found five out of the six. <laughs> One person never discovered the Lego man's head. Was that person you? And, no, it wasn't. But they, but they had all these very funny scores that went with it. And, and, <laughs> and it got published. It, it got tons of hits. I think it was yeah. on one of the late night television shows. And yeah, That's well, a great group. Yeah, don't yeah. forget the bubbles. Great group. Don't all right, forget we, the bubbles. we need to stop. We're going to end this. We've got to go to dinner. I'm really hungry. And, you know, we really appreciate your insight. Ken, you definitely push my buttons. <laughs> I, know. I will. I'll get that information for you. Okay, at the end of the day, you need to do what's best for your patient. You need to take into consideration your hospital policy. If you want to take that dog home, go for it. But I don't suggest fishing for marbles. <laughs> so that's the end of the show. We are doing this every month. Next month, we'll be back at home at our desks. Um, we definitely don't have time for that. It's quick. Okay, fine, go. All right. So we are tra it's a tradition at this point. 22 episodes in, our two-view trivia questions. So every time we have a two-part trivia question. And for you guys and ladies who have been here so long, a long day, you will get a chance to win something right now, tonight. So prepare, prepare for your turn to be called on. We're going to look for the first hand to go up and we're going to call on that first hand. So just get stretch or whatever you got to do here. Okay. In a second. I'm, for, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're putting out the rules. Yeah. Do you have to be in the audience? I was just about to tell you, you cannot be okay, that's all I in the running. God damn it, Ken. <laughs> Go again. Go keep going. <laughs> All right. So, well, first we do over last month's question and answer. So, the the trivia question from last month is: What is the nickname of the U.S. state of California, and why? The answer is the Golden State. But why? The answer is this: California has a reputation for its golden hills, fields of gold, and of course, all the gold in Hollywood. The California state oh, yeah. nickname was given to it by miners who found large deposits of gold there during the 1849 gold rush. You want to give your joke? It's a funny joke. No, you can tell my joke. Okay, all right. I'm just going to pass. If it, it's your joke. Wait, I don't so it's to... not funny? Well, let, well, me, let me read my joke. Read it then. Hold on. Okay. Uh, oh, we will also accept the fact... Oh, yes, we will also accept the fact that in summer... All the grass turns yellow or gold in color, hence making all the green fields shimmering in gold, ready to burn most of the time. Yes. So, so um, our winner this time, appropriately from the U.S. state of California, is Jennifer Carlquist, PAC. She's a longtime listener and supporter of the two yeah. of you, and she Thank wants to you, give Jennifer. a shout out to her husband, John. Oh, John. Aww. Hey, John. Hi, John. Thanks, John. All right. So congrats to you both. All right. Do you want to do this month's? Uh, this month coming up, uh... I should just do it, because I wrote this part. I'll do it. I got All right, I got we, this. Can okay. we do it in two minutes so that Yes, we can... yes. Okay, get ready to raise your hands quick, okay? Um, and, uh, and when I say go, okay, wait for it. Please say go. Here is this month's two-part trivia question. Should we say what they're going to win first? I'm yeah, they, they win a free online course. You'll win a free online course. So just whether so it's... Know, yeah, advanced boot camp, the heart course, high-risk EM... Any one of these courses. Trauma. Emergency medicine and acute care. Oh, my God. Yes. So the possibilities are not endless, but um, no, there's an endless. end. No. There's, it's a high well, variety. The stops eventually, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So wait till I say go. How many antivirals are currently approved for outpatient use against COVID-19? And how many monoclonal antibodies are currently approved for use against COVID-19? Go. Uh, right back. The, well, I, the I, back? I don't know. It was either blue you or critical up. access, dude. I don't know. I think I think it was Critical Access, dude. I think you're right. All right, Critical Access, dude. What's the answer? He, he has a name. What's, what's your name? <laughs> Good. Ding, ding, ding. 
Yeah, so outpatient antivirals is the first half of the question. So give your answer for that. You're saying one? One. Okay, okay. loudly say your answer just so it's not uh, in doubt. Okay, so half of that answer is correct. Blue I want to throw it to the, the back. back. Okay, good. What's your answer? What's your name, first of all? Katie. Katie, so first off, give us your answer. How many outpatient antivirals are approved for the treatment of COVID-19 currently as of today? Okay. God damn it. Don't say that. All right. And, okay. You were next. What's your name? Carrie. Carrie, come on. How many outpatient antivirals are approved? There are three. Yeah, okay, was so anybody listening? Two, two oral, the, the trick is two oral and one IV. That's where people got tripped up. Yeah, so I understand what okay. you're saying. Right? It's all right. So yeah, the Viclury, the Redesivir, that's IV. Okay, three outpatient anti, uh, antivirals. How many uh, monoclonal antibodies are approved right now? Zilch. Zero. Yeah, you go. Carrie wins. All right, very good. Congratulations, Carrie. All right. Come see well, me after. Yes, we'll chat after. Okay, well, great. Okay, so that's we it. We're ending. Do you want to do the We're classic done. ending We're, here? This is it. We're just going to tell you how to email us. If you want to email us and give, your, our, give us your feedback, you can email us at twoviewcast at gmail.com. You can listen to the show on Google Podcasts. You can listen to the Apple iTunes. We have over 500,000 downloads now. I'm pretty excited wow, about that. It's really right. crazy. And also, please rate us um, because that helps us. Uh, get feedback and know what we're doing. Um, and then if you want to look at any of our other courses, you can go to ccme.org. Yes. And I also want to give a shout out, as always, our video engineers, Dave Pett over there. Dave Ooh, Pett. I love you, You Dave. saw his naked torso if you were here for the ultrasound course previously. Okay. And Ricky Bucata, you might have seen his naked torso some other places. I don't know where. Um, he's and the other Chris video Navarro, engineer. Chris, thank you so much for helping with everything today. Yes, I really he was on the live it. today. Thank you, Chris Navarro. And then show notes always by Meg Dipple. Meg, Meg thank I hope you. you are warm wherever you are so right now. Thanks again for tuning in, friends in EM. Uh, share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us on The Two of You. Bye for now. Have uh, a good day and a now. great shift. I never get to say that part. Oh Yay! Woo! Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you.